0: Well this morning we talk about peace. On the second week of Advent we are reminded of the inspirational power of peace. But I think one of the questions that I kind of deal with in my life is what does is peace mean? What, is, what are we talking about when we talk about peace? Because we mean different things, right? It is in some ways like forgiveness. We mean different things but what is this sort of peace that we are talking about? We talk about Inner peace, and that is important. Inner peace is very important to us. And in this moment, we need inner peace, don't we? A sort of calm when the storms are raging around us, a sort of uh, confidence that things will be okay, a sort of like a willingness to be the strength in a space, no matter how difficult it may be for us to do that. But this morning, I think I'm talk about peace in a different sort of way, a way that in many ways has gotten covered up in the church. We don't talk about it much. It doesn't make much of a, a ring to us. It's not the Christmas message that we really want to hear. We want to hear inspirational words. We, we, we want inspirational stories about children, and, and, and we want to feel good, and we want to in, engage. But... Like there's a lot more going on to this advent, this coming of Jesus than just feeling good. There are structures in society that need to be altered, that need to be changed. And we as Christians are called into that space and into those spaces. And I think that is in many ways what Jesus is talking about when he says blessed are the peacemakers and gives us sort of this, 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 this mission to be peacemakers, but what does that mean? Does it mean just like we just make people feel good? We make people feel confident, we make people feel at ease and calm with their lives. No, I think it's more than that. This morning we're going to talk about Mary's Magnificat, as as you saw there in a little bit different version, Mary's prayer this morning when she receives the news from the angel that she will bear a son, a Messiah, a savior the world. Always my, one of my favorite things, right? It's like, um, it's not one of my favorite things, but it's, it's very noticeable. You know that song, Mary, Did You Know? And it's, you know, it's a good song, right? But like, it's, it's like, isn't that the greatest mansplaining song ever in the history of art? Of like, we're going to write a whole song, Mary, and say, did you know that you're bearing us?" Yeah, she knew. Yeah, she wrote a whole prayer about it. She prayed a prayer that is the bedrock of, of the Gospel of Luke. Like, it is, it is where the Gospel of Luke starts. It is where the Gospel of Luke ends. It is the theme and the narrative of the whole Gospel of Luke. Mary's prayer, Mary's words. So we'll get into that as we get going. But before we get there, we need to do some work. Like, this, this sermon, I think, is, um, is, is not one that's going to make us leave, like, feeling really great about life and the world. And, but it's important. It's important for us to hear, to know, to have a foundation and a bedrock of this also is part of our faith. And sadly, it has been buried under a sort of faith that is about feeling good. That is, I think, for the predominant church in America, our faith is about feeling good, right? It is about feeling comfort. It is about knowing that we'll go to heaven after we die, which again is about feeling good, feeling confident. And sadly, our faith has predominantly, Christianity has predominantly become about how an individual feels about the world. How they have the strength to engage the world. But when we talk about Jesus' peace, there's something else completely going on in the message of Scripture. And I want to get to that. I want to try to begin to unbury that. And I can't do that in the, in the, the, the 75 minutes that you're going to have with me today. I'm just kidding. I know some of you are like, oh, my Lord, 75. I can't sit here for 75 minutes. I have things to do. <laughs> Believe me, I don't, I don't want you to sit here for 75 minutes either. But for the 20 minutes that we have together, like, um... I'm gonna to try to uncover some things about the m- message of Jesus and about Mary's poem and about what's going on. I'm reading this book called Debt, the first 5,000 years. And obviously you can see that it's 5,000 years in the making. It is quite large and quite thick. It is by this guy named David Graeber and he's an economic anthropologist. Yes, he may be the only one in the world, but he's an economic anthropologist. And this is fascinating. If you've heard me talk about before, I fundamentally think about the message of scripture from beginning to end is about economics rather than about heaven or about how we feel or about Um, about church. It's about economics. And if we have a proper proper economics, then people can thrive. And an improper and unbalanced economics cause suffering, weeping, and despair among people. And it destroys people's lives. And so the message of scripture in so many ways is how do we do life in a way that brings flourishing to other people and all people everywhere? That can't be done without a properly ordered economics. And you say, well, I don't really believe you, Jason. And like, yeah, I understand you don't believe me. But the more I talk, the more I will make sense. And so that's why I need 75 minutes today to do that. I think we, I'm going to start here in this space of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah is a, is a, guy in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures, Nehemiah was worked in the court of Babylon. And so what had happened here is that the the people of Israel had been invaded, and they had been conquered, and the, the Babylonian Empire had taken some of them, and they'd been like, this happened for 200 years, 200 years ago. Now, Nehemiah hears that his ancestors were suffering in Jerusalem, and he petitions the king, and he's like, hey, I want to go back, and I want to help them. And the king's like, yes, yes, Nehemiah, go. Great. Nehemiah had resources. He had some power. He goes back, and he hears this story among the people that they're suffering in this space. They had been neglected for a long time, and this is their outcry. Now, the men and their wives raise their great outcry against the fellow Jews, the Jews who had been living in Babylon, who now had resources and power and, and were participating in the Babylonian rulership. Some were saying we are and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards although we are the same flesh and blood as the rest of our people, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. This is the outcry of the poor. Throughout history, Primarily because of economics. If Jesus is caring about the poor, then there are poor because economics are unbalanced. They are out of whack. They are out of tune. There is something in the system that is causing the creation of people who are in poverty, the creation of a people who have to actually mortgage their childhood farm in order to pay taxes. If someone has to mortgage property to pay taxes, there's a problem. If someone has to send their daughters and sons out to slavery to survive, there's a problem. Can you imagine the despair of the people that Nehemiah was encountering? Our lives have been so ruined. Our lives have been so destroyed. Our lives have been under The power of a force that we cannot contend with. We cannot deal with this. We are in grave despair. We are in grave despair. This is the story of so many of the people of Israel. This is the story still today of so many people in our world. We cannot make it. As it is, we cannot go forward. This all began in the kingdom of Israel because of an unaligned kingship. Now, King Solomon, you know, if you're a student of Scripture, King Solomon was a great king of Israel and is touted as the most wise man to have ever lived. This is a bit of... um, Scripture has this way of throwing shade on people without them knowing it. And only in later terms do we realize, like, oh, Scripture's throwing some shade on Solomon here. He's the most wise in all the world. Well, Solomon wasn't the most wise. He oppressed his people terribly. He oppressed them by building huge, massive projects, temples, palaces. And who do you think had to pay for that? Do you think it just came out of nowhere? No, the people did. King tells us says King Solomon was rich was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. Wow, that that's not a compliment, by the way. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God put in his heart. Year after year, everyone had come and brought a gift. Articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in chariot cities. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore trees. Later, it says that Solomon had, had 700 wives. And 1,300 concubines. Now, this is not to say, like, oh, Solomon was a terrible person because he had 700 wives. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you could make that case. Or you could also say, imagine how much this cost. And we're not talking about women. We're not talking about, not at all. It's just like, if there, he, is, he is supporting in, 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 a royal, in a royal way all of these people. And who do you think is paying for that? The common people of Israel. Through taxes. And so we get so out of balance here. Everything gets so out of whack that that now there is this elite group of people that have 90% of the resources and the rest of the people deal with a very minuscule amount of resources. And that in itself creates debt. It creates poverty. It creates suffering. It creates despair to which the prophets many of the prophets spoke about this. This is what the prophets talked about over and over again. They didn't talk about like, hey, y'all have sin in your hearts. Y'all have sin. You are oppressing the people. This is your sin. But we don't talk about that, do we, today? Like, we, we talk about sins of all sorts of different natures, but we don't talk about economic sin, ever, do we? Like, that's not even a sin, is it? Like, we can, it's not even on our radar, but that's what consumes like like a a tenth of the scripture in the prophets that's what's consuming them so amos says this saying hear this you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land saying we will when the new moon be over the when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the sabbath has ended that we may market wheat we got to get back to business it's the sabbath we can't do any work we got to get back to business we got it we can't wait skipping, skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. This is your sin, Israel. You have trampled on people. You have made a system that is unjust. You are putting people in debt just because you want more. You're destroying people's lives. Because you want to maximize your profit. The yoke is heavy for people. The yoke was heavy for people. And I'm fascinated by what David Graeber talks about here, about the history of debt. I just want to read a little bit to you. Can I do that? Can I do that? Yeah, maybe. Okay. Um, This is fascinating to me. I don't know if you will find it fascinating, but to me... It is remarkable. In all, in all Indo-European languages, words for debt are synonymous with those for sin and guilt in the history of language, illustrating the link between religion, payment, and the mediation of the sacred and profound realms by money. For example, there is a connection between money In German, it's called Geld. Indemnity or sacrifice, in the Old English, is called Guild. Tax, which is called, in Gothic, Guild. And of course, guilt. Our language itself links the connection between debt and guilt. If you are in debt, you're guilty. And what are you guilty of? Sin. You are in sin. And and like, so here we are. Here we are in this space of like our very language connected. This idea, like if, if you're in money debt, you must be in sin debt. You're indebted to something else, to something bigger. There's something wrong with you. Faced with potential for complete social breakdown, get this: Sumerian and later Babylonian kings periodically announced general amnesties, clean slates, as it were. As, as and so, in Sumner, in summer, this is the language that Sumerian. These were called declarations of freedom. Get this, y'all ready for this? I found this fascinating. Maybe you won't share my joy of this, but I'm going to be so joyful and excited about it. Maybe, maybe someone will rub off on you. In, in Sumeria, they were called declarations of freedom, and it is significant that the Sumerian word amargi, the first recorded word for freedom, get this, the first recorded word for freedom in any known human language literally means return to mother. Return to mother. I love that. Return to mother. In scripture, we would say, you return from exile. You come out of exile, back to your land. Since this is what free debt persons were finally allowed to do, to return to your mother. When you were set free from your debt, you could return to your mother because when you had debt you were having to work that debt off living in a land that was not yours serving people that were not yours suffering beside the waters of loneliness the waters of Babylon. Still later, he says this, why, for instance, do we refer, this guy is not a Christian um, in any ways, but he looks at Christianity from an anthropological standpoint, and he says this, why, for instance, do we refer to Christ as the Redeemer? The primary meaning of redemption is to buy something back or to recover that has been given up in security for a loan, to acquire something by paying off a debt, right? Redemption, it is rather striking to think that the very core of the Christian message, salvation itself, the sacrifice of God's own Son to rescue humanity from eternal damnation, should be framed in the language of a financial transaction. The Hebrew word patash and go'al, both translated as redemption, mean this. They could be used for buying back anyone, anything one has sold to someone else, particularly the recovery of ancestral land. Going back to your mother, to the land that was yours, having the freedom to once again plow your own field, to harvest, plant and harvest your own crops. This is freedom. In the Bible, as in Mesopotamia, freedom came to refer to, above all else, the release from the effects of debt. Over time, the history of the Jewish people came itself to be interpreted in this light. The liberation from bondage in Egypt was God's first act of redemption. The historical tribulations of the Jews can all be ended in the end of exile. In this light, the adoption of the terms Christians is hardly surprising. Redemption was a release from one's burden of sin and guilt and the end of the history would be that moment when all slates are wiped clean and all debts finally lifted when a great blast from the angelic trumpets will announce the final jubilee. This guy's preaching. If so, redemption is no longer about buying something back. It's really more a matter of destroying the entire system of accounting. Wow. Jesus comes pronouncing and proclaiming in Luke. It says, I have come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What is the favorable year of the Lord? It is, in Luke 4, 18 and 19, this is the year of Jubilee. And if you know from Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus, the year of Jubilee was a wiping of the slates, a wiping clean of all debts. Everyone can now go back to your mother. You're free finally. You're free. You can go back to your ancestral land. You can go back to that place that you grew up. You now don't, your daughters and your sons no longer need to be in slavery. You are free, you are free. The debts have wiped clean. The whole system is gone. The whole system is gone. How can people have peace if people are indebted in such a way that their lives are substantially suffering because of the debt of which exists in their life. And we translate this debt not only into monetary terms, but we do this in sin terms, don't we? Because the words are ultimately the same. We are guilty, we are indebted, we are indebted to God. But what God's work is doing in the world, what Jesus' work is doing is saying, you don't owe God anything anymore. You don't know. God, this is the work of the cross. To say it is an end to the sacrificial system. And a sacrificial system, right, is like I've done something wrong and now I have to appease God. I have to have a guilt offering. That's what it's called a guilt offering. So I have to take an animal, which is essentially money, right, a prized piece of money, and I have to give that for sacrifice in order to cleanse myself because we need to level the playing field with God. We need to be forgiven by God. But what Jesus is doing in the work of the cross is saying, That's done. The whole system is gone. You don't owe any God anything, and you won't owe God anything ever again. You're not guilty. You're not guilty. You're not guilty. You owe no guilt to God. It's all done. God doesn't need your guilt. It's all done. It's all gone. It's over. The whole system has been abolished. And so Mary's magnificent comes In this, when she heard the announcement that a Savior was being born, when she heard that she is going to be the one to bear the liberator, the redeemer, all of her people had suffered for so long under the heavy weight of their rulers, those who would indebt them and tax them and tax them and tax them in such a way that they would have to sell their lands to pay, that they would have to send their sons and daughters into slavery to pay. God, won't you hear our cry? We're having to send our sons and our daughters into slavery. Don't you hear our cries? Don't you hear us? How can people be at peace when their children suffer? They can't. And so in this announcement, in the darkest moment, in their lives, breaks in a beam of light and says, "Mary, you are going to bear the Son. You are going to bear the Redeemer. You are going to give birth to a child. And that child will be called Emmanuel. God is with you. God is with you. And so she replies, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in my glory. God, my Savior, my Redeemer. For God has been mindful of the humble state of God's servant from now on all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me holy is god's name god's mercy extends to those who fear god from generation to generation god has performed mighty deeds with god's arm god has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts god has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble god has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty god has helped God's servant, Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as God promised our ancestors. God is on the move. And how is God moving? By allowing us to go see our mothers. By allowing us to go home. By destroying the system of debts. This sometimes is interpreted... As mean to the rich, right? Like, it's kind of mean to those who are rich or those who are wealthy, and like, well, it's not my fault. You know, I, I, I really worked hard for this. And I don't know what it means to be rich. I don't know where the line is. I have no idea. I really tried to think about it. Earlier in my life, I said, well, you know what? This, 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 at this level, you're probably rich, and this is. I, I, I have no idea. I, I don't know what it means. Here's what I do know most of us have way too much. Most of us. In America have a lot I don't know if that makes us rich or not but there's a lot of rich in America and there's a lot of poor there's a whole lot of people who are suffering at such depths today aren't there all around us and this pandemic has only made things worse the rich have gotten richer the poor have gotten poorer But it's always crisis that brings this about. The same thing happened in 2007 in the financial crisis. It was the black community that lost more wealth disproportionately than anybody else. It is always this way. I'm sure they will now do studies in the years to come and through this pandemic. And it will be the the black community which suffered disproportionately. It will be the Latino community that suffered disproportionately. Crises always create more division. They don't have to, but they do. And so we ask ourselves again, what is peace? What is peace? Is peace just simply the feeling of goodness inside of myself? The feeling like when all the world is raging around me, I still have a confidence upon this rock with peace that passes all understanding? I I don't know. To me, that's not peace. to me. That is a piece of the message a piece, a piece of a piece. Get it. That is a part of the message of Christianity. But much deeper at its core is this message of social liberation. That's what Jesus was doing. That is what it means to redeem. We are buying back those who have had to sell everything. And we are sending you home to see your mother. That is what Jesus' work is doing. It is liberating everyone so that you can go home, so that you can go home, so that you can go home, so that your children can come home, so that you can live together without the burden of debt and pain and despair. That's what Jesus is doing in the world. But sadly, we don't talk about that much, do we? Because it's always uncomfortable for us. It's always uncomfortable. It's not such a Christmassy message, is it? We want to be able to, to have whatever we want to have. To whatever we are capable of having. Whatever we can acquire, we want, we want God to say, yes, go acquire that. Yes, go do that. We don't want God to get in the way of our economic prosperity, do we? God, stay out of this. This is not... The message of Christianity, God, don't you know? This is not the message of Jesus. Jesus came to save us from our sin so that we can get to heaven. And sin has nothing to do with economics. Sin has nothing to do with social justice. Sin has nothing to do with how we interact with our neighbor. It's just about me and my heart and how I feel and my surrender and that prayer that I prayed once upon a time and the confirmation that I had. And I was in front of people in church and I uh, I said the words. And now I'm good, right, God? And I don't need to do anything else. The message of Christmas, the message of Advent, the message of Jesus coming down to rescue all of humanity sins shakes through the very structures of society, of language, of interactions, of humanity. What Jesus is doing is coming to abolish and destroy any system that is hurting anyone else. And it may be torn down. That's what I believe Mary is saying that the rich will go away hungry, that the system that they have built, that the system which breeds inequality, the system that continues to make the rich richer and poor poor, that's going to be destroyed. And the church has been given the opportunity to be part of that, and we have passed. No thanks. That's not for us. We've got buildings to maintain. We've got pastors to pay. We've got nice Christmas pageants to produce. No thanks, Jesus. We'll take heaven without any responsibility socially. Thanks. Give us peace, we pray. But this Christmas season, may we be encountered with this Redeemer Jesus. May we come from far away to this manger scene with a, with a Mary and a Joseph and a baby Jesus, and may we bend our knee and may we say, yes, Lord, Emmanuel, God has come to rescue us from our darkness because this system of debt despair is destroying us all. No matter if you are on the side of you got enough, or if you are on the side, if you don't got enough, the very existence of this debt despair system is destroying us all. And I think we're beginning to see that in our society. It is beginning to come unraveled. It is beginning to fall apart. And if we don't deal with it, all of us will go down with it. The message I believe Jesus is proclaiming to us is this. Care for each other. Defend each other. Fight for each other. Forgive each other of your debts. That is the message. That is the Lord's prayer, isn't it? We say trespasses here, but, but really in, in, in the Greek it's debts. Forgive us our debts and help us to forgive those that we are indebted to. Debts. Because debt destroys. And it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until we have to send our sons and daughters into slavery the message of Jesus is Christmas is peace peace friends, peace and the message of Christmas this year is your mission is to be peacemakers peace creators those who stand against the structures of humanity that that draw us down into despair, that destroy friendships, that destroy families, that take people off of their ancestral land and their homes and put them in the hands of developers so developers can get rich while it pushes off people who've lived in South Raleigh. Let's make this really personal, right? In South Raleigh for a hundred years but now can't pay the taxes on their property because Everything around them has been built up in such a way and the developers want it that way and they're making it that way so they can swoop in and buy that property for a lowball offer where they get nothing. And then they get displaced out far outside of the city where their systems are no longer working. They don't own their land anymore. And all the while that developer takes it and he flips it And doubles his profit overnight. What is Jesus saying in this space? What is Jesus saying to us in this space? In Raleigh, North Carolina. In 2020. In Advent week two. Peace, friends. Peace. Let's pray together. Lord God of heaven and earth, Emmanuel, God is with us. We come to you today troubled, troubled by the work of the world around us, troubled by what we see, troubled for our friends and our family, for our neighbors who suffer so deeply. God, we come to you troubled, as we should. God, we pray for our City, we pray for our world. We pray for those who are suffering under heavy debts. Those who are being taken advantage of. Those who have no defenders. Those who are being ground up under the wheels of business as usual. Of profit maximization. Of debt. And debt. And debt. God, we pray that you would come again. Emmanuel, God is with us. Break forth into our world and destroy these systems that destroy others. And Lord, as you do, help us not to miss it. Help us to be on the right side. Help us to join you, even though it may be costly to us personally. Help us to join you in this work of liberation so that all people everywhere can go see their mother that can have freedom. God, help us to be peacemakers on this second week of Advent when we remember what peace really is, that all people could go home to see their mothers. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.